This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Why don't we begin with a very short meditation? And in the past, I've talked about something that I call the two-breath meditation, whole spiritual path in two breaths. Some of you remember it, some of you are brand new, probably haven't heard of it. The two breaths are up, down, in, out. So on the first breath, on the inhalation, you just lengthen your spine. You imagine that God is just very gently lifting your head up toward the sky. And on the first out breath, you breathe out down into your lower belly, into the hara, bringing strength into the lower belly, becoming centered. On the second in-breath, you breathe directly into your heart as if there were nostrils in the center of your chest, breathing in love, compassion, gratitude. And on the second out-breath, you breathe out from your heart into infinite spaciousness in all directions, surrendering into boundless spaciousness. Up, down, in, out. And I'll let you do that at your own speed. And then after a short time like this, we can forget about the first breath, the up-down, and just do in-out, breathing into your heart, breathing out into boundless spaciousness.
as the practice proceeds, letting go of effort, letting the breath, letting the practice do itself, less and less volition, surrender into boundlessness. Welcome, everybody. Today, what I would like to talk about is fearlessness. I've been around a lot of enlightened beings in my life, and I've seen them angry, and I've seen them sad, and I've seen them have all kinds of emotions, but I've never seen one be afraid. And in fact, I think one definition of enlightenment could be to completely go beyond fear. Because fear is based in a sense of self who is afraid of something other than self. Uh, I was doing a little research last night. I'd heard this saying that psychopaths aren't afraid, which looking at the politics lately, it's an interesting question. What I read was that psychopaths do experience fear. They just don't experience danger. They are afraid, but it doesn't bother them at all. Also, babies experience fear. A newborn is afraid of two things. She's afraid of a sudden loud noise and of falling. In general, it seems to me that dealing directly with fear is one of the most immediate and potent ways of awakening. Fear arises when we have doubt, when we doubt God or when we doubt our true nature. And out of this doubt arises anxiety and boredom, not just uh, this doubt that I can get enlightened, but just moment to moment, very subtle ways. When we meditate, the mind is wandering. There's agitation in the mind. There's agitation in the body. That is a manifestation of this underlying doubt. Fearlessness is basically then connected with, can we connect with our basic true nature? Can we connect with God? And to the extent we can, then what's there to be afraid of? Now, of course, that's easier said than done. John Paul Sartre said, people often prefer a very limited punishing environment rather than face the anxiety of freedom. There was even a, an example many years ago they were, where they were creating a big dam in Africa that was going to create a big lake, an artificial lake, and they were tranquilizing and capturing big mammals to get them out of this place that was going to then be covered with a lake to save the animals. And when they took them in these cages and they moved them to a very similar environment, but a different one, a lot of the animals didn't want to go out of the cages. The first thing we have to do is begin to hear the voice of fear rather than running away from it by uh, just getting lost in anxiety, getting lost in boredom. Is it possible to just be quiet and feel that quiet, quiet voice of fear that's not the screaming fear, but this background anxiety, background grief? 
when I was at longer meditation retreats, I began to notice that when I was in a quiet frame of mind, a spacious mind, and right before thoughts would arise, there was a slight fear. There was a slight fear of that emptiness. Basically, there is this ongoing tension between the empty nature of ourself, the empty nature of reality, and the ego's need to reify itself and think that things are solid. Can we begin to feel that underlying fear of emptiness? And by emptiness, what we're talking about here is going beyond concept having a direct experience of your body, not concepts of your body, not my elbow or my belly, but just a direct naked experience of the body, a direct naked experience of the mind without getting egoic conceptualization mediating the experience. Can we learn to distinguish then between anxiety and uncertainty? Life is uncertain. I think we're all seeing right now how uncertain life can be with the pandemic, with politics, with the environment, with the financial climate, so many different things. Can we experience the uncertainty without automatically going into anxiety? And when anxiety does arise, can we begin to experience it very directly and immediately? Basically, two paths to working with fear. The first one is, where is the doubt? Where is faith? Can I be connected to true nature? Can I be connected to God? Instead of being lost in fear, can I increase the amount of faith or decrease the amount of doubt? We've all had experiences, I'm assuming that all of us or almost all of us have had direct living experiences of being much vaster than our conceptual egoic mind thinks about things. And yet we forget that experience. We uh, once again fall back into conditioning. Can we then be with that sense of faith in what we have experienced? I actually had the experience once where Hanuman came into my bedroom when I was living in Santa Fe. He actually came into my bedroom and hung out with me for a very short amount of time. And yet still there are times when I don't believe that Hanuman is taking care of me. I don't believe that God is there. I'm thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen? Look what's happening with the stock market. Look what's happening. Right now, people are renovating my house. So a couple of weeks ago, they, they were pounding on the house so much that it broke the plumbing. So there was somebody on the roof pounding on the roof. There was somebody under the house pounding on the plumbing. There was somebody outside of the house uh, pounding on the wall. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> life is not seeming particularly safe right now. So first thing is, what do we have faith in? How deeply can we go into that faith? Suzuki Roshi said, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. What is the most important thing? How deeply can we trust that? Maharaji said, the only thing that's important is how much you love God. Trust in God, don't try to figure it out. We're giving a talk here about, we're participating in this conversation about trying to figure out how to go beyond fear, but it could it be as simple as completely trusting God, that whenever we feel that lack of faith, that we, we surrender into, beyond doubt, into what it is that we truly have faith in.
The other way of doing this is a much more Buddhist way of looking at things, which is being aware of fear, having compassion toward the fear, having a tantric relationship with the fear, the tantric three-step that we've talked about. So, can we be aware of fear? It's hard to have faith until we're actually being with the fear, having a sense of its shape and its density and its temperature. Almost always when fear arises, we get fixated on the trigger. We're not with the fear. We're focusing on what it is that we're afraid of. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to the planet. I'm afraid of uh, what my partner might be doing because he or she doesn't seem to be paying the right kind of attention to me right now. Can I go beyond fixating on the trigger? How often have you or I really been awake and aware during fear? Now, probably we're not going to start with the big fear when the doctor says, I've got really bad news for you. But every day there are so many anxieties, so many small fears. And to begin to be aware of what it feels like to have that fear in your body, as opposed to this resting in faith. I remember the first time I was really awake during a major moment of fear, and it was it was almost shocking to me that I realized, it was before I really started to meditate, I realized that I had never been aware of fear. I had always gotten lost in fear. Being awake during fear, training yourself to notice the difference between anxiety, minor fear, fear of fear, and this open-hearted quality. In, in Buddhism, there are the four foundations of mindfulness. You can be aware of the body, of the mind. You can be aware of feelings. And the feeling is associated with every experience as a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience, a feeling. And can we begin to notice the feeling tone, the different feeling tone between being open-hearted, having faith, and having fear and anxiety? And actually taking periods of your day where you're just focusing on that feeling tone. Can I right now be just not even concerned about the content, but what is the feeling? Can I keep surrendering into the feeling of faith and connectedness, connectedness to myself, to God, to other? The more we can be with fear, then the mind stabilizes. We're not trying to escape, run around, juggle. And the heart very naturally begins to open. We can begin to have a compassionate relationship with fear. When we look around our country right now and see how so many people are unable to understand what so many other people are saying, that can the Democrats understand the Republicans and vice versa? It seems that there's so little communication because people are not able to admit their own fear. What is really going on? Why are people saying what you're saying, you're going to destroy the country? No, what you're saying, you're going, to, you're going to destroy the country. That people aren't dropping down deeply to this level of faith and fear. So being aware of the fear, having compassion for the fear. And then finally, can we even get to the tantric stage where even fear is a very perfect pointing at what the heart needs to do next? that every emotion, even fear, has a healing message. Emotions aren't mistakes. Emotions aren't problems. Emotions are messages that when we get lost in them and caught in them and identify with them, 
become problems. You've heard me say this probably too many times already, but in English we say, I am afraid. In Spanish, I have fear. In Tibetan, fear is here. So that imagine that your heart-mind is like the sky. But because we're finite beings, or at least we assume that we are, even though we're not, we put a window frame around the chunk of sky that is the mind that you're looking at right now. And if the cloud of fear is big enough, and the window frame is small enough, all you see is this cloud of fear, and you say, I am afraid. But if through practicing you expand the window frame, that same size cloud can come, and now you see something very remarkably different, that there is this fear, but it's contextualized in the blue sky. And you see that it's moving. It's coming into the window frame, and it's eventually going to be gone. Pema Chodron famously says, are you the weather or are you the sky? Are you the cloud that's passing through the sky or are you the sky itself? Clearly, we're the sky, but you and I each have our own individual clouds that are very difficult not to identify with. I am the ang I am angry. I am afraid. I'm great. <laughs> Whatever it is. And from a more somatic sense, Fear is becoming ungrounded. It's losing our connection with she who supports the mother, the divine mother, Mother Earth. And this very basic grounding breath, which is breathing out through the base of your torso into the earth and receiving that grounding energy is the, the quickest way I found to deal with startle, attack, fear, anxiety. But eventually we have to then begin working with our faith. Let me read one quote from Ernest Becker, who won the Pulitzer Prize for writing Denial of Death. He says, The irony of the human condition is that our deepest need is to be free of the anxiety of death and annihilation. But it is life itself which awakens this fear, and so we shrink from being fully alive. That kind of sums up the whole thing. Let me read it again. The irony of the human condition is that our deepest need is to be free of the anxiety of fear and annihilation. But it is life itself which awakens it, so we shrink from being fully alive. We are going to die. But are we? Stephen Levine wrote, who dies? The body dies. The personality dies. Going beyond fear takes us into non-duality. Because there isn't an I to be afraid of something else. Resting in the wholeness of consciousness itself. What do you tell people if they're dying and afraid of dying? Most people don't admit it, I don't think, when they're dying. But what is your, in your experience, how, how can you help the living and the dying? Okay. Well, that's a great question. And when I used to go around to a lot of gurus and lamas and different people, I'd always ask the same question. I, I would ask them, what would I say to somebody who's who's dying, but they've never meditated and they don't believe in God? And I got so many remarkably different answers from the Dalai Lama and from Karmapa and from all these other saints and people. Pretty much what they said and what I feel is that it boils down to what do you trust? If If you trust God, then you go to that. Everybody has done something good in their life. 
can you trust the good that you've done? Can you realize that even though life has had its ups and downs, that there's a basic goodness in you? I mean, even Buddhism is fundamentally based on a notion of basic goodness, whether you call it Buddha nature or something else, that all we have to do is pay attention and basic goodness will be revealed. At the same time, I don't think it's too important what I say to somebody who's dying. It's much more important how I am when I'm saying something. I could be talking about uh, the Giants' third base problem or something like that if I'm completely wide open. So that am I a living example of uh, open-heartedness, of non-duality? And then it doesn't make too much difference what we're talking about. I mean, certainly there are a few techniques and, and practices that are very useful at the end of life. We've talked about them in a previous podcast. We can do that again sometime, maybe. But it's mostly, it's communicated how much fear of death am I bringing into the room with this person who's dying? I, I train people to be guides for the dying. And I've done countless numbers of trainings. And then if people uh, want to, they can apply to be Living Dying Project volunteers. But the secret is that in a weekend or a bunch of weekends, I cannot train people to go beyond that fear of death. That the purpose of the workshop is for me to look into people's eyes and for mm -hmm. me to determine whether they're ready to do this work or not. Have you in your life up until this point processed enough of your own fear of death that I'm willing to let you loose on the unsuspecting public? If you haven't, then I can, I can teach you all these clever things and you're bringing your fear of death into the room with the clients and the client's thinking, oh my God, she's not even dying and she's more afraid than I am. What does that say about me, right? When I first came back from India, I, I, the first thing I did was I got really sick. I almost died of hepatitis, but then I, I gradually got better. And I didn't know how I was going to make a living because I, was, uh, had a, I had a PhD in mathematics, but I didn't want to be a mathematician anymore. So the first job I got was teaching meditation at convalescent hospitals in Alameda County, where Oakland and Berkeley are. And the deal was I couldn't get paid unless 10 people came to the group. So I'd go to the convalescent hospital and eight people would show up and they'd wheel two people in who were comatose in a, into the back row, right? And I, I'd do my meditation instruction and people would be looking at it like, well, what are you talking about, right? So finally I gave up and I just came in there and did stand-up comedy and told stories about my travels. And people loved it. Right, I was not trying to convince them of here's the here's the way to deal with fear of death and here's the way to be uh, more happy. That I just let myself come through. Now, some people here are therapists and psychologists and healers of various sorts, and having certain talents that you can utilize are wonderful. And healing does happen. But when I'm really at the bedside of somebody who's dying. What I try to do is, first of all, get as present as I can get and then be as honest as I can be. My feeling is I might never see you again, that we're going to be together here for an hour or two. Maybe you'll be here next week. Maybe you won't. Maybe I won't be here next week. So how alive can we be right now? How deeply can we 
surrender into this situation that it's you and me loving each other in, in this room right now. Love is contagious. Surrender is contagious. That's the, that's the function of a guru. I'm not saying I'm a guru, but being around a guru, you, you, you get by osmosis the possibility of being free and surrendered and open. So that to the extent I can do that in the face of death, I'm not denying the person is dying. I'm realizing that's what's going on. And yet I'm not busy saying there's a dying person, there's a cancer patient. So, yeah, I, I just wanted to say one more thing that I about that because that's people are afraid of of pain. They're afraid of dying in pain. A lot of most people. So I think once you are able to get people comfortable, then you can exactly be there yeah. in that space. And that's a big one. Well, there's a difference. Between, be there. There is a difference between pain and suffering. Absolutely. And I, I have been around, in fact, I remember being in Santa Fe at the dying center that I ran there. And I had a client who was very close to the end of her life. And she was writhing in pain. And I said, how are you? And she said, I've never been better in my life. So uh, Stephen Levine famously said, pain is mandatory if you've got a body. Suffering is optional. In a way, we could have the same discussion we just had about fear in relationship to physical pain. Can you have pain and not contract around it, not, not resist it, just feel unpleasant sensations? And if you need to, you take a pill or you, you pull your hand away from the stove or whatever you, you need to do there. But can you not immediately do the unconscious thing of resisting the pain and saying, bad, pain, bad? It's just unpleasant sensation. It's the body telling you that something's wrong. And sometimes, of course, there are pains that don't go away. <clears throat> I had my hip replaced, and they back in those days, they didn't do the anterior. They did the posterior surgery. So they cut through the biggest muscle in my body, the, the, the gluteus maximus muscle. And for some reason, the anesthesia from the surgery wore off before the post- surgery anesthesia kicked in. So there was about a 30-minute period where I was in the most excruciating pain, where like there's this big incision through this muscle. And the pain was so intense that I went into ecstasy. I was not agitated. I couldn't be distracted. All there was was pain. And can I just be resting in, in that pain? I had the big advantage of knowing that pretty soon the drugs are going to kick in right? So that it alleviated a lot of the emotional, psychological thing. Oh my God, this is terrible. It's going to continue forever. So we can train ourselves to be with pain right now, sitting in a chair, your, your butt on the chair, your lower back, tension around your eyes, and just learn to open to that. But very often when pe people say, I'm not afraid of death, I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of the pain. I'm afraid of the nausea. I'm afraid of the bodily symptoms. So the qualities of the open heart are, one of them is, 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 is connection. God is love. God is connection. God is spaciousness. Fear is disconnection. Fear is pulling back from connection. Being around great saints, they are, they are connected with 
life. They are connected with everything that's around them. They are not even connected. They are one with that. And in fact, from a more tantric perspective, there are not, we can look at the screen right now and there are 42 people in this room and different personalities, different bodies, different locations. But at the same time, there's only one consciousness. It's not just that we're connected. We're one consciousness. And in fact, modern quantum mechanics has proven that there is only one consciousness and there's not an objective separable, separable reality in the way that we tend to assume that there is. So fearlessness is going into that one consciousness, nothing to be afraid of because it's all one. Um, well, I kind of, one thing I associate with fear is, lo is loss of control. And of course that brings up the phenomenon or the experience of surrender. Um, I've been having physical therapy and um, the therapist is working on adhesions in my right leg and, and pressing on these knots in my hamstring and calf and I can feel the pain and I can feel my resistance but I I can't like surrender to the sensation itself there's just I can I know I can you know from working with you and from spiritual practice that relaxing around that pain and letting go of the resistance or relaxing the resistance is a way to um, just be in the moment with it. Right. But it's kind of like I'm, I just can feel how tightly I'm holding on to that lack of control and his pressure and my inability to just experience it for what it is. It's very frustrating. Well, a couple comments. One is that maybe your physical therapist is not that skillful, <laughs> that, <laughs> that he or she is pushing too, too hard to the point that you can't relax into it, that there's this edge that the, uh, a really skillful healer would be at, where uh, it's almost more than you can bear, but not quite. And you're relaxing into the, the next uh, bit, if you will. The second thing is that fear of death is very intimately connected with fear of loss of control. They did a survey a number of years ago of how afraid are you of dying? And they, they, they surveyed four groups of people doctors, ministers, meditators, and psychedelic drug takers. <laughs> it's kind of a setup. And it turned out that doctors and ministers were significantly more afraid of dying than, than uh, meditators and psychedelic drug takers because taking drugs or meditating is learning to be beyond control. Meditating is you're doing it kind of at your own speed and psychedelics is doing it at the speed of your dealer, but basically both, both of those are ways of going beyond control and seeing if it's safe or not. Can you have... My son and his mother love roller coasters. I hate roller coasters. <laughs> I don't know what that says exactly. Practice letting go of control. And certainly in meditation. I mean, when we're meditating, initially in meditation, it is about controlling. Can I develop some concentration? But after you've developed enough concentration, you can begin to let go of controlling and let there be a more free-flowing mindfulness. 
And even then, even beyond cultivating mindfulness, but just resting in presence, resting in the way things are. In, in Dzogchen practice, the ultimate practice, they say no meditation, no distraction. Because when we get to the end stage, there's nobody meditating and nothing is a distraction. There's no control at all because it's all equally God. The beloved can only be everything. It's unpleasant sensations as well as pleasant sensations. Happy moments as well as not happy moments. Dying moments as well as birthing moments. Uh, I'm coming from that Dzogchen perspective. And, and I put in the chat, no thinking, no fear. And for me, that comes from uh, a, an observation that thinking inevitably deals with either the past or the future. And, and that, uh, so, in, in, you know, the implication, of course, is that, that the more present we can be, the less we are prone to fear. Because the conceptual mind is shutting down. We're shutting down the conceptual mind. Uh-huh. And entering that dual, entering that non-dual space, the function, the conceptual mind doesn't operate. So in a sense, every time I sit down on my on my cushion to meditate is an encounter with fear. Um, it was it was uh, Pema Chodron who uh, long ago in in a kind of a shattering moment of awareness really called me to realize how much my whole life was being driven by fear so and and so you know to a certain degree every time i sit down is an encounter with you know thinking which is either the past or the future and and in and to a certain extent that becomes eventually that becomes actually an encounter with 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 my own death. Okay, well don't get mad at me if I disagree with you a little bit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think at times that it's it's okay to think that thinking can come from various places. Certainly, uh, the inner monologue is based in fear, as Gary's saying, that you're thinking about the past, you're thinking about the future, you're not present. It's a way of avoiding or denying the empty nature of the, the present. At the same time, we, we can consciously think. You can think and have an open heart and decide to do your income taxes or, or make out your grocery bill, and that's not based in fear. Uh, the mind is not the enemy. Getting lost in the mind is the problem. So I think it's, and even the ego cannot be destroyed. It shouldn't be destroyed. It's a very useful tool. It's getting lost in the ego. So I, I think we need to be a little careful not to demonize thinking completely. At the same time, when you say no thinking, no fear, isn't it possible to have fear in the body even if you're not thinking? Somebody is is pushing in in a very painful way on a, a tight place in his body, he might even not be thinking at all, but there's fear arising because the fear is locked in his body. 
So, I mean, I think that often what you're saying is true, but that all these emotions are really locked in the body. Emotion, moving energy, it's in the body. Fear is in the body. And it manifests as thinking sometimes, but sometimes it's just hanging out there in the body. And you're not thinking and you're, you're feeling that fear in the body. Any other comments, questions? Um, so I, I really get how fear is uh, based on the belief in separateness, maybe the delusion of separateness. But wouldn't that be true of grief also? Isn't grief about loss? And if there's no separateness, how, how do we lose some, someone or lose anything? Oh, boy, that's a, that's a really a great question. And uh, I know there are people in this room who have grieved a lot in their lives. We are separate as well as we are one. There is a danger of going into this non-duality and in that, in that stepping into non-duality, trying to deny our humanity. There's a famous story of Talopa, no, Marpa, who was Milarepa's teacher, who was a great teacher of non-duality, said, we're not separate. It's all an illusion. We're all one. Everything's perfect. And his son unexpectedly was killed in a farming accident. And he was, he was inconsolably grieving. So one of his students came to him and said, hey, you've said that it's all an illusion. Why are you crying? And he said, life is an illusion, but the death of one's child is the greatest of all illusions. We are living in the illusion. And partly we know it's an illusion, that it's, it's perfect, as Suzuki Roshi said, we're all perfect, but there's still room for improvement, right? So can we keep those two things alive at the same time? When I'm with somebody who's approaching death, a couple of days ago, I was with my 23-year-old client who's got a brain tumor and is probably not going to be alive too much longer. It's a very sweet guy. And so when I'm with him, can I at the same time realize that it's all perfect and that he's not separate from me and he's not separate from God, but at the same time realize that there's a great sadness in him and in his family that he's, he's probably dying young, and that both of these things are true at the same time. There's this human dimension and the divine dimension, the infinite and the finite, the relative and the absolute. It's easy to do one or the other, most of the time. But can we do both at the same time? Can we be firmly have one foot in each dimension of reality? Like right now, I mean, here we have all these 42 stories in the room, 43 stories in the room now, right? And yet there's one consciousness. Can we not lose the stories in the oneness, but can we not forget the oneness in the, in the story? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.